Welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses, and more importantly, the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Regular listeners to this podcast will know how much I love to learn new stuff. And in this podcast episode, I learned a lot. And the stuff that really blew my mind was probably about the mushrooms. Who knew that mushrooms and the trees in the forest are all interconnected and talking to each other, working in unison? Certainly not me. Now, by the time you finish listening to this interview with John Renston, this week's guest, you'll be wondering why on earth we don't do more of what he does and why restaurants and cafes don't feature more food sourced in this way. And I'm talking about foraging. To me, foraging is a bit of a no-brainer. The foods you come across, whether they're roots, berries, leaves, mushrooms, seaweeds or flowers, are true superfoods. And the act of searching for them helps with your well-being, either because you're enjoying it with family and with friends, or if you're on your own, it's like a form of meditation, getting into the right zone to spot the stuff you're looking for. You might have ruled out this activity because you live in a town or a city, but think again. John discovered the rewards of foraging in London itself as he explored his local park in Stoke Newington. You won't believe how many different species of edible plant he has eaten from that square mile, but you will find out later. Now that his home is in the beautiful Dorset, John's foraging patch extends to woods and the seashore, as well as different green spaces in the capital. Through his foraging walks, workshops and book, he's doing his bit to spread the word about wild foods and just how fascinating they are. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. John Renson from Forage London, thank you for sparing the time to be on the podcast. Hugely appreciated. You're welcome. Uh, for people listening, can you just explain where on planet Earth are we, please, John? We are sitting at the kitchen table in my rather lovely kitchen in our house in Wareham in rather chilly Dorset. We are on a beautiful winter's day, or not so beautiful, overcast. And uh, as I walked in the door, you were prepping various foraged ingredients by uh, some strange coincidence. So, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. a, it was a setup. Yeah. <laughs> it had been to Sainsbury's. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. Um, so we're going to chat all about the world of uh, foraging and wild food. And thank you so much. I came on one of your uh, wild mushroom foraging days a few weeks ago, which was excellent. So uh, did yeah. you enjoy it? I did. It was superb, actually. Yeah, really good. And one of the things that, that came to me kind of as we were wandering around the beautiful uh, New Forest um, is it felt really natural. It felt really good just to be amongst the trees. And, it, and it, it, I suppose, you know, you probably mentioned it as well, but it, it got me thinking about the fact that for generations, that's how we would have found our food. Yeah, what? for sure. I mean, foraging's an immersive experience anyway, or at least it, it, it should be. And yeah, it's most definitely the way that we've gathered our food for the majority of our time on this planet. I won't climb immediately onto my soapbox, <laughs> but, you know, it's only since the advent of Neolithic agriculture that we've farmed our food. Yeah. So, so how long ago was that? Eight to 10,000 years ago, okay. six to 8,000 years ago. Depends kind of where you are in the world, really. Right. But, but 
And there would have been also a crossover between hunting, gathering, foraging and farming. Mm. Um, so it's not been like a complete kind of cutoff point. But yeah, we're, we're definitely hardwired to go out on these uh, food related, supplies related, sustaining ourselves treasure hunts. Yeah. And it makes sense, like you said, that there'd be a crossover. So we didn't just switch it off when we were farming. It feels now that we've very much switched it off and it, and, it, and it's very rare. When did when was that the case? Was that just the advent of kind of, uh, I don't know, retail in its modern guise, not necessarily supermarkets, but greengrocers? Well, or? I think, I think um, this part of the world, I think, I think England is, is very different necessarily from if you've grown up in a quite rural area in Poland or even perhaps if you've grown up in Scotland where they've definitely got more of a, a continuity with their foraging culture. Um, I, I get people who come on the, the events that I run and sometimes I suggest if you want to know about foraging in, in the UK, ask your gran. Ask anybody who might have been alive during the Second World War because there was a big return to these things. You know, the country being blockaded, we needed a good supply of vitamin C, so people were out picking rose hips and things like that. There's a lot of uh, a lot of resurgence of it, but yeah, in the, in the UK, we've definitely got a big. I don't know if you want to call it a knowledge gap, but it's a it's a culture gap. Mm. Um, I've got here like a ukrainian cookbook and that's that's a a normal cookbook but in a way it sort of dovetails into foraging there's quite a few ingredients in there that i wouldn't expect to find in a, in an english cookbook but in here seem to be quite quite at home yeah. so i think there's a lot of cultural differences at work okay it's a shame isn't it because it, it's um you know, we'll come on to some of the benefits, I suppose, but just that getting out in the woods, getting outside, that, that relationship with food is such a positive experience. Yeah, well, I think the walk that you came on was, the way I, the way I build that is it's, it's, it's a late season mushroom foray, which means that we're not necessarily going to be encountering 50 or 60 different species and we're not going to be collecting masses and masses of fungi. But what we are going to do is, as a group, we're going to experience being in the woods together on a chilly day and being on this sort of mission to see what we can find and see what we can identify. And even if that aspect of it was unsuccessful, just getting a group of people into the woods and getting them to be... It's a lovely word, uh, nemophilist, which is a wanderer of the woods. Just getting people to do that for a little while, I think, has got enough value on its own. In a way, taking people hunting for wild mushrooms, it's kind of, that's the hook. Mm. That's the thing that people are attracted to. But once we get them into the woods, really, it's about uh, turning people into ecological stewards and getting them to to appreciate what a woodland really feels like and to engage with it and to understand it. Yeah, I'm quite pleased you didn't find 50 or 60 because just the half a dozen we found blew my mind at the time, John, so I was struggling. I think it was chanterelles and hedgehogs and yeah. something with the word blue in it. But yeah, if you got to 60, I really would have been lost. Um, but it worked. I was driving back through the New Forest yesterday about 40 miles an hour down the A31 and all of a sudden, I think it was, uh, was it the hedgehog? Uh, yeah. hedgehog mushrooms was yeah. it they're quite big sort of white ones that yeah, yeah. admittedly at that speed I couldn't be sure but it was the first time ever that I'd probably noticed mushrooms growing on the side of the road yeah, and that must sure. have just been from tuning in a few weeks with you and, and, and seeing them that they yeah my periphery vision kind of spotted it I nearly stood on the brakes to run over and see if I could identify them but my wife would have thought I was bonkers probably. I've done a lot of that I'm sure pulling over at dodgy places to jump out the car to yeah. go oh it's a paper plate yeah <laughs> it's the bottom of a coke can yeah. um 
Does it feel then, having having lost that in our history, does it feel like an, there's been a resurgence of interest in foraging recently, or is it a bit like you know you buy a yellow car and all you see is yellow cars? Because I suppose you're surrounded by it. But uh, I, yeah. I can't honestly judge what the level of interest is compared to what the level of interest was past about 20 years back in time. So I started getting interested in this as a topic about just over two decades ago. And there's definitely been uh, an accumulation of people interested in it. And what I think we've also found, when I say we, I mean me and some of my fellow foraging teachers, is that there's now quite a few more foraging teachers because we've created them. Quite a few people who've come on walks that I ran in the early days are now running their own walks. And in fact, I can think of three or four guys whose walks I attended sort of a long time ago, and they've inadvertently spawned me onto my, my career doing this. So there's definitely more people teaching. There are more people foraging, but it's still, you know, we were out in the woods and I spent a lot of time in the New Forest, or forget the New Forest, think about a London park or a beach or whatever it might be. The amount of actual people that I encounter out foraging is almost imperceptible. You know, it's non, it's not a common pastime. Um, it does seem to get, certainly with the New Forest, Forestry Commission, Mushroom, ongoing debate, it does seem to get more column inches than, than it perhaps warrants. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's definitely there's definitely an interest in it, but I think a lot of people are perhaps um, above the stage of just picking some blackberries. They might they might pick um, maybe a dozen to two dozen different wild plants throughout the year, which is absolutely brilliant. But the amount of people who are doing what I'm doing, which is probably collecting three, four, five hundred different species of plants and seaweeds and mushrooms throughout the year is quite limited. Yeah. It's a small, it's a, it's a handful of people, I'd have thought. Yeah, okay. I was chatting from, with Guy from Riverford Organics. I don't know if you know that that, that firm a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah. And uh, about whether there was a change, I suppose, because even, even organic food is something ridiculously kind of small proportion of what we use and about yeah. whether there was a growing interest. And it, it, he kind of said that he felt that things were getting, you know, better and worse at the same time. Because in some, way, some ways, the continuing kind of intensification of farming and doing it on a big scale was getting worse. We see it in the news with the cutting down of the Amazon still. Yet at the same time, people's awareness of trying to get back in touch with where their food comes from and try not to just use the supermarkets yeah. seems to be growing so i suppose it's the same in in foraging it's a tiny amount but hopefully if there's a growth in interest it's not going to compensate for the problems that we've got in our relationship with food uh but i guess it's it's about a trajectory it's not yeah in a way you could look at it like like rewilding or permaculture or a lot of other things it, it may not be the solution to the problems that we have mm. but it is the the beginning of a different mindset so therefore, it's uh, a contribution in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a stepping stone. To, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and you know, I do find with groups of people that I take out foraging, and it I don't know how many it runs to. It's, it's been thousands and thousands of people that you do get a change in people's mindset. Admittedly, the people who come on my walks are generally very receptive to this anyway. Yeah, and uh, and they paid for the privilege of being there or. Sometimes they haven't, but they've got a, a vested interest. But yeah, you do see people, um, <clears throat> how can I put it? If you're forming an emotional relationship 
with a little piece of land, you're going to want to protect it. Mm-hmm. And even in an urban environment, that could be like a weird, scruffy little triangle of land that's just behind the bus stop where you go to work every day. And you wouldn't even you wouldn't call it a park, and you wouldn't call it a common. It may not even have a name. It may just be one of these peculiar little linear landscapes that peppers the countryside. Um, but if it yields uh, cherry plums, or it's got a fruit tree on it, or something like that, that every year you pick from, you're going to form an emotional relationship with that little bit of landscape, however much of an ugly bug or an irrelevancy it might appear to anybody else. So yeah, it it certainly makes people um, more in tune with their landscape. I think it does, you come back to this phrase, ecological stewardship, and I I think it does create that in people. I mean, if you, I was talking to my sister about this, and I was saying about how a forest got cut down but she wouldn't necessarily appreciate it and she said I can feel I can feel like that I can feel that way about a forest I said yeah but you do live in London when was the last time you went and stood in a forest have you reminded yourself what it really feels like and therefore what the absence of that feel like so when we do take people into the woods or we take people and get them really fundamentally involved with nature it does definitely strengthen their 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 bond with it and also their desire to to protect it yeah which is not necessarily the main drive of what i'm doing i'm not you know a social champion i'm somebody who teaches foraging because i like going foraging and i like <laughs> sharing it with people but there's a lot of very positive byproducts of, yeah. of what i do yeah which we'll we'll come on to some of those very shortly um i'll start with mushrooms although i know you know it's, it's foraging in all of its guises um but just as an example so i think you said there was something like three thousand different uh species that would be called or types of mushrooms in the uk yet we eat a very very tiny percentage of that, is that yeah right? i mean the, the figures don't agree mycologists don't agree fungi fanciers and experts don't agree but Roughly speaking, there's about 3,000 what we'd call macro fungi. So those are things that are properly recognisable as mushrooms. But there's also another, dependent on who you speak to or what the current thing is, another five to 8,000 or so fungi. And then you get into this world of pure nerddom of rusts and smuts and moulds and slimes and God knows what else. But yeah, about, about 3,000 or so that we would recognise as being being a mushroom. Okay. But then within that, it's a very small percentage that we're actually interested in in terms of uh, edibility, yeah. maybe 5% of that. So 5% of that 3,000. And then of that, the amount, that's about 100 species, and then the amount of those that are commonly picked by people is probably about a fifth maybe even a tenth of that yeah and then of that then there's the amount that most people don't encounter because like i say when i'm out in the woods i'm i never ever meet anybody who is off the path off the main path Mm. and yeah 
No, I'm, get, la- I, get, I'm, I'm laughing because we very much were when we were on our walk, and I always get in trouble with my family because I don't know. I I, I want to take a shortcut. I want to make it more interesting. I do want to get off the big kind of tracks that yeah. we have in the forest, and uh, invariably I get into trouble because we end up in a bog or cut off by a stream, which is exactly what happened when yeah. we were out walking. And I loved you for it, and I, I wish my family were there to go. Look, I'm not the only <laughs> idiot in the woods. We get we stick. get into trouble. I get into trouble too. We have ground rules with me and Ellie go for a walk. Oh, yeah. I'm like, should we go for a walk? She's like, great, but. A walk involves walking. It yes. doesn't involve standing still in the same spot for twenty minutes. Yeah. So yeah. 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 But getting... we do spend a lot of time in the woods as a, and as a family as well. And you know, and and now it's getting colder, and we're getting past the mushroom season. But it gets into this kind of lovely singularity now, where there's the woods will be full of winter chanterelle. Yeah. And pretty much nothing else. And that's n- no good for me to take a group out. I can't take a group of people out and go, right, here's winter chanterelle. Here's some more. Over and over here's again. some more. Yeah. But for us as a family, we'll go probably to where I took you. We'll go cycling around all those bridal paths. Yeah. And me and Ellie and my son, Oscar, will we'll collect some winter chanterelle. We'll probably cook some in the woods. And it's just nice. it's a lovely thing to do. Yeah, great, great day out. So if there's a hundred edible species, why is it we only see the same four or five, your chestnuts and your, you know, your cut mushrooms and stuff in the in the supermarkets? Well, those are the ones that we can grow. Um, the 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 majority am i right in saying that or not quite a large amount of the wild edible species have a symbiotic relationship with certain tree species some of them with only one tree species and some of them with various different tree species um, so in order to farm them you'd essentially need to farm trees if you want to farm a mushroom that only grows with mature oak trees, that's that's a long, long game, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And also not reliable. Yeah. So, I mean, I do find uh, quite a few of the, the really reliable, when I would say reliable, they come back in the same place every kind of year. Species actually grow in, in pine plantations. So they are growing in a tree farm, in a monoculture <coughs> pine tree farm. Um, which does support them very well, but it takes takes decades and decades for these to come through. Right. So the ones that we buy in the shop, um, we're able to farm because they don't have this symbiotic relationship <coughs> with trees. They're either um, slightly parasitic or they're, and I think oyster mushrooms are parasitic and we can farm those, or some of them, their job primarily is to, rot wood down they're called saprophytes and their function in 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 the whole grand scheme of things is their nature's decomposers so they're going to munch everything down they're going to take a tree and reduce it back down eventually with different species into into hummus into uh and, and back to the earth so those suit very well the idea of being able to be farmed in in that kind of environment but still what can we what can we find farm i mean your, your portobello mushroom that you mentioned is the same as a button mushroom, the same as a field mushroom. It's the same species. Right. We can farm oyster mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms, enoki mushrooms, a little skinny white ones that are related to a wild species that we get that comes out about now called velvet shank. But it's very, it's, it's very limited what okay. we can actually farm. We're scientifically speaking, we're trying to make steps, but we're way, way off being in control of the processes that mushroom mycelium has spent 
billions of years mastering. Yeah, well, this is the bit that blew my mind. And I, I was coincidentally reading Omnivore's Dilemma, which I think you've read, haven't you? I think I asked you on the day. And, no, uh, I haven't. Oh, you haven't I've, read no, I've read, you I've read Michael Polan. I've read Some various things, but okay, I haven't fine. read that one. So he specifically talks about uh, a mushroom foraging bit in his uh, in one of the chapters. And uh, and it blew my mind because he talks about, and I forget what it's called, but in essence, the kind of, you know, the root system and how little we understand mm. mushrooms. And unlike sort of photosynthesis of natural plants that I think he describes them as almost being more animal-like, like in their biology, um, but this, this, I think there was one mushroom or, or group of mushrooms that had something like forty kilometres of, of of what we would determine root system. But and you told me when we were out on the walk that there was maybe a hundred miles of uh, of stuff under my boot. Can you just explain that a little bit? Because we, the mushroom isn't in essence the bit we see. Really, no, it's not. And that what's under your boot is is if you like, it's quite a convenient sort of sound bite for mm. explaining it. And the figure I use is is 300 miles of mushroom hyphae. And uh, to be honest, it doesn't matter how specifically accurate that is. And I'm sure I've got friends or colleagues who are teaching who might say, you know, they might say uh, 100 miles of it in in a tablespoon or whatever it might be, but it illustrates the point. A lot. Um, Yeah, an awful lot. So uh, the mushroom is is a fruit of an underground organism called a mycelium. And the mycelium is a, a interconnected network of white fibres, and those fibres are made up of even smaller fibres, which are called hyphae, which are about a hundredth of the width of a human hair. Mm-hmm. And they bunch together and bunch together and bunch together and form this visible kind of white spiderwork network that you can see, which is called mushroom mycelium. And its primary function is to forage. It spreads out. It spreads. I don't know why I'm doing hand gestures <laughs> into the microphone, but I'm doing the the universal symbol for it. It spreads out and um, forms this this matting underneath the forest floor. Or if it's not got relationships with trees and it gets its sugars in a different way, it could just be underneath a field. Or if it's parasitic, this network could just be under the bark of a tree. And that's the organism that we're dealing with. It's a it's a perennial organism that forages. And one of the ways that it propagates itself is by creating a fruit, if you like, a reproductive structure that we call a mushroom. But if you think about how little we really know about this process, we can identify the fruit, but we can't identify the individual bearers of that fruit. So that is like me being able to say, I can tell you these are acorns, I can't identify this oak tree. We've got thousands of species of these different network of white fibres, these mushroom mycelium, that we can identify only by the fruit that they produce, only by their mushrooms. Um, And they are interconnected. We're learning so much more about them. Um, Just this year, it's been an extraordinary year for mushrooms fruiting. And there's various different theories as to why that's happened. But if you just look at the amount of people who like say, oh my, this year, my lawn, mushrooms just popped up everywhere. Well, they didn't just pop up everywhere. The mushroom mycelium, the thing that creates them, the living organism was already there. It was already present. So there aren't any mushrooms coming up on my lawn, but there's a ton of mushroom mycelium under there doing what it does, which is getting on with breaking stuff down and disseminating things and spreading and connecting and and helping manage any little little or big ecosystem. Um, And only on like a year like 
this year when the conditions have been extraordinary boom it's fruited really really prolifically right um i, I find it mind-blowing that that you know that's going bit, on it I is suppose, a bit mind-blowing we, really, we don't but... see it we don't necessarily know why is it scientifically that it, it, it seems to be something that we we're still fairly naive on and we're only really getting our heads around is that is that because the research has fairly recently started or is it because of its complexity I, I, I'm at risk of getting thoroughly out of my depth. <laughs> Don't worry, no, no, there's no no fact checkers. No, yeah. for sure, <laughs> but but I, I think if you really want to know the answer to those questions, what you should be doing is talking to a professional mycologist. Right, and I think some um, people would tune out if I did that, wouldn't they? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I mean, the thing is that my I I sometimes see stuff in print and it says wild food expert john renston and i hate the word expert because i'm not an expert in anything my knowledge base is so disparate and so all over the place and so constantly being seduced by the next topic that dovetails into foraging whether it's herbal medicine or horticulture or soil fertility or just how to cook something nice or a new plant that I've never met before. I, I won't ever become an expert in, in something like that. Yeah. But there are, you know, there's people who've been studying mycology for 50, 60 years and that is their entire topic. I'm not guaranteeing they can necessarily talk to you yeah no absolutely but yeah, but, but yeah um, it, it certainly seems fascinating because i know we'll, we'll maybe talk about some of the medicinal stuff but the opportunities that i guess all of this research creates that we're you know we're and and i saw something was it mental health and hallucinogenics with mushrooms being used it feels like this untapped resource I suppose. yeah there's a there's an interesting study going on at imperial and also over in the states at john hopkins where they've been using um psilocybin extracts to use with people who've got severe depression or who are facing uh, emotional trauma involved with uh, terminal conditions and things like that and they've been giving them what they describe as uh, high dose psilocybin which is a hallucinogenic compound found in about 200 different species of mushrooms worldwide they've been giving to them this in a controlled environment in order to uh, perhaps help change their brain function and uh, I think rewire it is probably a bit of an overstatement but but to give them an altered perception and uh, what they're finding basically is they're getting amazing results yeah, yeah. um the, the, the it's available online the, the the research that they've been doing yeah and um, I think from a medicinal point of view we're really in our infancy there's not been a huge amount of funding from certainly from pharmaceutical companies behind the research um i think if you look at something like like aspirin so you know back in 1900 the bayer drug company were able to launch this new product aspirin and it was essentially uh it was uh, salicin, so it was what you would find in in willow bark or a, a plant called lady's mantle or various other plants. And it historically had been used as a painkiller for thousands of years. But they were able to, I think they added one molecule and therefore they were able to patent it and change its name and say it was their product. The problem that we've got with, with mushroom-based medicines is... Nobody has any idea how to isolate what's going on. And in fact, isolating what is going on is the wrong approach anyway. 
because uh, <coughs> within the mushroom you've got an awful lot of very complicated chemistry and it's all working in combination with each other. So you've got multiple polysaccharides and terpenes and all sorts of things at work. And I don't think anybody's been able to, to silver bullet any of this and there go for we've made mushroom and all the yep. new wonder yeah. chemical mm. and um yeah I did, the research goes on yeah. and i think there'll be more there'll be more weight behind it mm. it's, it's frustrating it's not just with mushrooms i guess is it but that that lack of ability to patent uh, fruit and vegetables is the reason that uh, yeah so so little is it's why you can walk into a supermarket and find stuff with messages all over the box about how much fiber and how wonderfully good for you it is because it's been processed and packaged in some way but you don't see the same kind of uh, information over an avocado or a tomato and stuff like that do you well i wrote i wrote a, a, a thing a few years ago and it was it was supposed to be uh, about wild foods versus superfoods right but i kind of abandoned it because it's evident that wild foods are superfoods yeah so a superfood is anything that's disproportionately high in nutrients and vitamins and minerals and antioxidants, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And you go into a supermarket and, I mean, what have you got? You've got 100 products and of them, maybe 99 of them are not necessarily that good for you. And then there's one that's really good for you and it's called a superfood. But you yep. go back to wild food, you go back to the things that I've been picking, they've not made their way into existence through our domestic food chain. Yeah. And... Uh, I am. I'm getting on the soapbox no, here. Please but, do. But that's, that's, that's kind of the point. Wild food is superfood, essentially. It's all very high in, in, in nutrients, it's very high in fiber, it's very high in protein. Um, in addition to which, the act of collecting it is an exercise in mindfulness and personal well being. And I'm not saying this is. A political manifesto and i'm also not saying it's available to everybody so i i run some foraging walks in beautiful beautiful park in in south london called burgess park and on the edge of burgess park there's a lot of quite high-rise flats now if you're a single mum with two kids working two jobs you're not spending 40 quid to go flouncing around Burgess Park with me for three hours looking at how to make interesting flavoured vinegars and things like that, are you? It's unlikely. However, were you to be able to find a bit of time within when you took your kids to the park and you could all forage some dandelion leaves and some chickweed and some, some other bits of some mallow, some other things like that. And you could come home and you could make a green smoothie with it and you can get your kids eating something that's really, really good for them. That you've all collected together. It, it's got to have value. But I appreciate and I'm constantly frustrated by the, the, the middle class status of foraging because, you know, in order to do what I do all the time, I earn a living from taking people foraging, which is great, you know. My job is a, is a dream, but I appreciate that for an awful lot of people, it's not an option mm. to just spend all their time, you know. They're too busy, wasn't it? John Paul Getty Jr. said most people are too busy earning a living to become millionaires. 
And yeah. so I do, I, you know, I'm not saying, oh, everybody should just, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not going to dovetail into everybody's lives, but everybody I've taken out, to the group of businessmen out their office at lunchtime, don't let them go and have two pints and get them into a park and get them competing for who can find the biggest stinging nettle leaf, right? Which is a childish and futile exercise. And people turn into children. I've literally seen them just coming up to me going, John, 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 look at that one. It's like, it's a stinging nettle leaf. And then we tempora them or something like that. We make them into something. So the, the, the rewards are far greater than what might apparently be the reward, which is something for nothing. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a lot more at work mm. with going out collecting. It's like, you know, it's, it's like cooking your own meal, isn't it? You cook with your family and you eat with your family. You actually cook something. It's rewarding. It's a rewarding experience, isn't it? It's an enjoyable experience. Yeah, you, you appreciate it all the more for the yeah. effort that's gone in, I think, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you do. And you all spend time sort of, oh, this is lovely. Oh, I like, well, you know, fawning over your successes. Yeah. It's a shame. I, I think so much of it must be a confidence thing. It's a shame we've lost that skill. I, it's reinforce you know, the nutritional aspects. I know there was a lot of research done into the difference between taking vitamin C in a pill and eating an orange, and yeah. we don't actually understand why. We understand it's <clears> vitamin <throat> C, and we understand that we can take it out and put it in a pill, but we've got yeah. no idea what's going in, on in the orange and the complexity of why it has such a difference on you with all the antioxidants and all the kind of micronutrients that are in it and why it has completely different impact on the body and the fact that we can get all of that from going foraging is amazing yeah but it, it, it must be a confidence thing that people just don't know i mean presumably that they're walking past all of this incredibly nutritious edible delicious food is that the issue should we teach it at school well i did see, I did see an article about the dangers of botany which was basically that people who get interested in plants often crash their car a lot right <laughs> so wherever you go you are surrounded by these things yeah. and i walk down the road and i'm constantly assaulted by all sorts of delicious and interesting or mysterious things right. around me i'd love to see it taught in schools but it doesn't need to be and now we're doing like a foraging class it it would need to be now we're gonna be outdoors and one of the things that we're going to do while we're outdoors is this activity i think anybody in the uk can identify a dandelion can't they Yes. Any school kid can identify and do a dandelion clock. And if you can identify a dandelion, you can dig up, if you have the permission of the landowner, at the right time of year, you can dig up the roots. If you can dig up the roots, you can roast them. You've got a root, a root vegetable that you can roast that's um, vaguely related to a Jerusalem artichoke, because it's in the same family. Um, you could make coffee, a caffeine-free coffee, by roasting those roots as well. You could saute those roots. You could do various different things with them. You've got uh, a carb-rich foodstuff. Then you've got the leaves, and you could sweat those leaves, and you could cook them like a, a green vegetable. You can eat them as a salad ingredient, albeit a quite bitter salad ingredient, but you can force them in the same way as you do with rhubarb. So sometimes dandelion, when it's grown in long grass, it's actually been forced itself and the leaves are really pale and they're much sweeter. The dandelion flower, if you pick 100 of those on a sunny day, which is not a difficult thing to do, and I 
last year I posted a picture of about 100 flowers that I picked, and I got quite a bit of flack from the Pro B lobby, which I am part of the Pro <laughs> B lobby, for God's sake. But thousands and thousands and thousands of these flowers everywhere. It, what I did was not going to deprive the bees, <clears throat> at, at least not in my opinion. Um, from those flowers, you can make sauces, syrups, wines, vinegars. So you've got one plant there that's got three edible parts, all of which have got multiple different uses. So if you could find 12 different things to do with a dandelion, you could do something with a dandelion every year of the month, every, every month of the year, sorry. The only bit of a dandelion that's not edible is the stem which is hollow and it's got this kind of bitter latex in it. But you could, with kids, you could wash it out and use it as a drinking straw. Okay, it's not gonna last, but it's something to do with it. Um, that's one plant. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's not an enormous amount of knowledge no. to be able to safely identify a dandelion in order to give people access to three brand new foods all with multiple uses, all available at different stages throughout the year, all with a high level of nutrition um, and uh, all offering real kind of close engagement with nature. Then you could, you know, elderflowers. You've got elderflowers, you've got elderberries, you've got a betwixt and between stage where you've got green elderberries that you can caper. You can find a lot of plants that throughout the year will give you multiple crops that you can use something like wild garlic that we i mean we are drowning mm. in wild garlic around here aren't we yeah, in about love, love three garlic. months from now we're just yeah. you know literally I, I i took my son and his friend to some woodland up the road from here on the way over to kimbridge and we were walking in this big sloping woodland and when i say as far as the eye can see literally as far up as the eye can see was wild garlic and that's one plant that's really, really easy to identify because it stinks yeah. of garlic, isn't it? Yeah. And if it doesn't, it's not it. It's okay. something else. And that's got five edible crops. That's got edible leaves, edible shoots, edible roots, edible um, flowers. And when the flowers fall off, it's got these amazing little edible seeds that you can caper and make wild garlic capers from. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, if you learn... 12 plants, all of which have got three different different crops. That's 36 new foodstuffs, all of which could provide you with five or 10 different. Nobody's even got the time for that, have they? No. So I don't think it's a, a lack of, necessarily a lack of knowledge about plant ID, which can be taught really easily. I mean, when I first started doing this, about 20 odd years ago, I did not have a, a nature background. I'd grown up like a kid in the 70s who plays in the woods all the time and does what you do. And I felt an affinity with nature, but I couldn't identify any plants and, or, or mushrooms or anything like that. And now sort of current obsession, seaweeds as well, which we've got 700 or so species in the UK. But really plant ID is just, entry level it's then what can you do with them what can you what can you use that for you know stinging nettles masses of protein like 30 something percent protein 
stinging nettles, fiber, iron, calcium, magnesium, etc., etc., etc. And I use them for all sorts of different purposes. And then my friend James, he strips out the fibers and he makes cordage. And he makes bracelets out of them and he uses <clears throat> for all sorts of different reasons that I'd never encountered. And there's a lot of plants that I've been foraging for for 10 or 15 years. And then I just think, <clears throat> or even I don't think, maybe somebody asks me, can you eat the root of that? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's never, ever occurred to me. And then we find out if you can or not. So... Yeah. I don't know what the original question was, no, but that no, was no a idea. long but, answer. But no, no, it's great. Sorry. I love it. I, I, I suppose it seems so obvious. Uh, you wonder why why it doesn't happen and what the solution is, because it feels on so many levels. Like you say, there's the meditative aspect. It's getting outside. It's respecting the countryside. It's the nutrition. It's family time. It all feels like such a no-brainer. I don't know why we don't do it. I, I, it must be knowledge, which I appreciate isn't hard to get, so that's an excuse. It's but... a weird cultural gap, isn't it? Mm. It's... it's um... It's not what we do anymore. Yeah. I mean, I know in the 1950s we handed over the preparation of an awful lot of our food to, to corporations, didn't yeah. we? We stopped doing the things that we might have done with flour and baking prior to that, go back another few decades where everybody else was doing their own brewing and things like that. I think a lot of it is to do with living in cities, Right. And urbanisation, because if you look at the structure of a big city and the existence of monoculture, the two things do seem to certainly in the UK go go hand in hand. And I don't think we're uh, involved in where our food comes from or how it gets to us. And I mean, I'm equally guilty perhaps more so than everybody else. Because, you know, I was, what's in my fridge? It's a mishmash of different things. There, there are wild foods in my fridge. There are things that I've made myself, and there's also things that come from the supermarket. And, and you know, I quite fancy Thai food tonight, so I might get a takeaway. So I'm not a purist. No, absolutely. But it, it's, um, it's an idea that we have to change if we were to get everybody a bit more involved but then if we were to get everybody more involved how feasible is it um i, I would like very much to see kids being more involved in nature i don't think anybody disputes that this is a good thing it's a good thing for physical well-being for mental well-being for, for nutrition for all sorts of reasons um it's just not tremendously high up on the um well it's not on the curriculum is it doesn't seem to be does it no and there's so much evidence around uh yeah the the, the benefits of being outside I, I work with a charity called the parts foundation in bournemouth which looks after all of these sort of public open spaces and uh yeah, so we're constantly barraged by uh, by evidence about getting kids outside. And there is some work going on at the moment with the National Trust and, and English Heritage looking at, yeah, how do we use town centre, I suppose, parks and open spaces more yeah. uh, to get kids out in them. So, uh, yeah, cities I don't know. Are, feels... Cities are amazing, though. I mean, you know, somewhere like Bournemouth or go to the biggest, go to Southampton or go all the way to London. Yeah. There's so much 
open green space that we tend to zone out. If you think, if you were to think of London, if you were to think of looking down on London, you'd see it as grey, not green. Mm. London's 47% open and green spaces. That's greater London you've got to do to get that, that figure. If you were to do that on like the square mile, the city of London, yeah. you're not going to be coming up with a figure like that at all. But you know, so many parks, so many gardens, so many commons, so many of those weird little landscapes that don't have a name. Mm. And wild plants are just thriving, going bonkers. They don't need looking after. They don't need any attention. And so long as you can do a bit of research into the, the history of the land on which you're foraging, which you can do amazingly well with the internet. You know? So you can look at a, a park in Bournemouth or somewhere like that, and you can see whether it's ever had a history of industry or a lot of places you can look at them and you can see, well, that's actually a documented green space that predates the Industrial Revolution. So that's got no history of industry ever. So the soil quality there is going to be really good. Then you might need to look slightly at what the park's management re regime has been. You know, have they systematically sprayed everything with glyphosate and fungicide and whatever else? Um, I did some soils before I before I published my book. I did some soil tests on three London parks, um, and they were great. Yeah, soil quality was really really good. Uh, not quite as good next to the main road as it was in the centre of the park, but still within all the tolerances that they gave for the soil quality for home vegetable growing, which right. is done on like parts per million. Of, of things like sulfur and presence of cyanide and all that sort right. of stuff and and they, they came up they came up great yeah I guess that's part of the challenge is that the well, it is there I suppose but this perception that food that's grown in the countryside <coughs> on the farms is yeah. clean and edible certainly with my kids when I go and dig something out of the garden and bring it inside they're like I'm not eating that it's dirty and I'm like where do you think your food comes from but it's worse than that isn't it it's like countryside clean city dirty and that's yeah. not necessarily the case at all I did a study in Canada of fruit trees grown in urban environments and right. they were coming up with greater degrees of pure, purity and um toxicity levels being far lower than a lot of the ones in in the agricultural areas because of what spraying because of spraying because and of, yeah of exactly so it, it's i just think we we kind of go here's the city here's the countryside we don't think of them we think of them as like two things butting up against each other we don't think of them as uh, uh tendrils of one and tendrils of the other extending in, into each other yeah certainly when you get mega cities the size of london or some of the cities in in in, in america or things like that yeah so apart from maybe the the yeah the misconception of the cleanliness issue um and I guess this probably comes more from mushrooms and other ingredients, but people are afraid of poison, I guess, yeah. particularly because mushrooms seem to get a bad rep in the fact yeah. that there's some dangerous ones. Yeah. With the stuff you explained just then with, with dandelions and wild yeah. garlic, uh, presumably it, it's, it's hard to find something that looks almost identical that will kill you in that well, genre. There's, 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 a lot or... more, there's a lot more poisonous plants out there, potentially. There's a, right. uh, you know, we, we've got about 2,500 wild plants in the UK, and then adding to that, God knows how many thousands and thousands of domestic plants and hybridised plants and feral plants and all sorts of things. There's quite a lot of poisonous ones. We've got poisonous trees. We've got a yew tree at the bottom of my garden there. Every single part of that tree is poisonous, except for the delicious little berries that it's got there. But then in the middle of those little berries is a really poisonous stone. <laughs> um, we've got 
poison hemlock and hemlock water dropwort. We've got garden plants, things like foxglove and aconite, things like that that are extraordinarily poisonous. Um, what else have we got in my garden there? A bit of spurge, and that's got latex in it, which if it gets in your eyes, can blind you. Right. I don't know really people just, off now. I don't really just stay indoors. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that we're mycophobic. We're yes. scared of mushrooms because we've got this culture of, oh, you know, scared of mushrooms. I say people on walks and they go, is that one going to harm me? And I go, yeah. not if you don't touch yeah, it. I'm not going to be attacked. It's not going to jump yeah. you. Um, and also with the, with, with the mushrooms as well, I generally tell people if the, if the ultimate destination of the mushrooms that they pick is on a compost heap, not in a frying pan, they will never, ever poison themselves. So you could, you could just identify things. And even if you are 100% sure of your identification, you don't have to eat them. You're not duty bound to play Russian roulette with your own life just because you've got something free. And um, where very often the enjoyment of the process of being out and identifying something that should be enough, could be enough, um, I, the last walk I did of the year, we went walking in smoke woodland and the, the mushrooms really that come out in the oaks and the beaches are way, way over. So they, they happened two months ago. So we broke the walk into two parts. So the first half, we went and did some identification of species that we'd find growing with oaks and beaches and birches, but that weren't suitable for us to eat. And just to kind of frame the whole fungal world and explain how things grow. And then the second part of the walk was right, now we're gonna to go to pine plantation and we're gonna pick three or four decent edible species of mushrooms at a reasonable volume. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to all be about what you can, what you can pick the whole time but yeah people are definitely definitely mycophobic yeah no 100% yeah and I think that nervousness means that it's easier just to rock up in a supermarket and buy something in a bag that's nice and clean and tuck into it rather than get outside and uh, and pick it which is a shame particularly for some of the species that you mentioned I suppose um, one of the other things that interests me when we, when we walk and I just want to uh, quickly touch on it so so the reason that a mushroom sprouts up and we, we, we spoke about the kind of you know the, the root system um, that's predominantly they only really fruit when they're uh, is it stressed or panicking you were kind of in indicating or um, that that's often a trigger for why they would pop out of the ground it's part I'm, of their reproduction I'm process I'm sure that whatever I say will be, <laughs> <It> will be <laughs> open to mass disagreement yeah. um, I would say that the threat to future mushroom populations is far and away loss of habitat right not people picking them yeah I can understand why organizations that have the job of running large forests with um, protected environments and uh, quite rare habitats, certainly in the UK where we're so deforested, don't want people commercial foraging. The incidences of commercial foraging I think are vastly overplayed. I think they're a bit like shark attack, that once you've got a story, that story gets regurgitated loads and loads of times. Um, 
I can't remember your question. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, it was what causes a mushroom to, and, and it was kind of linked, I suppose, to when you were saying, yeah, pick the dandelions and there's nowhere for the bees to go. And I suppose sometimes people are concerned in overpicking mushrooms. But the actual point when we were out and about, I suppose, was, was the fact that they were fruiting the mushrooms. So you mentioned that they're often on edges, they're often near paths, they're, off, they're often in stressed areas. And although the, uh, the root system may go on for kilometres underground, we don't see, the mushrooms often come out in an area where they're more stressed. And picking them in some ways and certainly spreading their spores is is beneficial because it's part so, of their so, life cycle. Um, to be a complete pedant, it's not a root system. No. Because it's not the root system of something, it is the something. Yes. The the, the mycelium. I keep forgetting it, the name mycelium, no, that's but, why I but say the mycelium. <laughs> but roots, you know, it's fine. It's yeah, fine for, 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 for common parlance, but it yep. is the organism itself. Yes. And the mushroom is this reproductive structure. However, the main way that this mycelium, this organism propagates is by spreading itself. It spreads and spreads and spreads underground. And uh, then it comes across end of habitat, comes across a road, a car park, an industrial estate, a housing estate, whatever it is, comes across the end of its habitat. And that is often the place at the edge of the woods where it's gone to its backup plan, which is to produce these spore ejecting structures these mushrooms which will then try and fling loads and loads of spores out because they're looking to colonize another area they're looking for like where they go next i think there is a big misconception that mushrooms spread by sporulating by opening up and spreading their spores when primarily and i'm not saying entirely but primarily the way this wonderful under misunderstood not properly understood uh, species of organisms, genus of organisms, family of organisms spreads is, un is underground. So I, I think of the, the, the creating the mushrooms and the sporing as more of a backup plan, but you know, I'm, I'm sure I'd be open to criticism yeah. for saying that. <laughs> I, the, the only comprehensive survey that we've got it's generally referred to as the Swiss study, right. and it's a study done into chanterelle. And chanterelle are the single biggest, the biggest, uh, most uh, harvested wild mushroom in the world. So every chanterelle you've ever written, ever eaten, is wild. You can't right. farm them, and and they pick tens of thousands of tons of these things throughout the world every year and the vast majority of them are picked in like the ones in scotland they're picked in in commercial pine plantation you know right. they're picked in a woodland that is not a fragile ecosystem it's a tree farm it's got a life it's locking up a load of carbon it's doing a fantastic job it's providing timber but it's going to be chopped down it's its management plan its death is already preordained at a certain date and the byproduct is it produces all these mushrooms um Anyway, so within that, what they did was they did this, this survey um, across about 15 or 20 years where they, I think what they did was they did like quadrants on the ground and they did three areas and one of them they left and they didn't pick any mushrooms from and one of them they picked some mushrooms from and one they picked the crap out of it. They picked right. every single fruiting body that turned up. Yeah. 15, 20 years down the line, how had the chanterelle fared as a result of this treatment well it was fine really? in fact the the, the the i think i'm right in saying the quadrant where it had been exhaustively picked was producing more fungi 
yeah. than the other ones. Right. So to suggest that picking mushrooms will endanger future mushroom harvests, I think is incorrect. Yeah. Um, there's definitely thought that needs to be given and protection that needs to be given for mass scale harvesting of large areas where the fungi need to go back into the soil, they need to contribute to the ecosystem, they need to uh, help with the whole regenerative process of woodland, they need to feed uh, obscure species or maybe not obscure species of fungal gnats and things like right. that that then are food for something else and food for something else. I don't really know about that. I know Michael, um, uh, what's he called? Uh, Peter Volaben in his in his, his book, The Hidden Life of Trees, yeah. he talks about soil as terrestrial plankton because right. he says it's so full of different life forms and different yeah. organisms that we don't really know enough about that, that basically it is this, it's a food. It's a massive yeah. uh, culture of different food for the rest of all the organisms. So yeah. that needs contributing to... Yeah, I think that research around the fact that trees are, are communicating with each other and the forest is, is, is communicating. just insane, isn't it? And you, yeah. again, you mentioned on the walk the difference between if you take a tree and put it in a park in isolation, that it won't yeah, grow anywhere sure. near as well as it will in its own ecosystem, not just because of... The, the mushrooms and the mycelium, but but those those are the mushrooms are partly giving. I don't know what it what is it what what what's what's a mushroom doing to help a tree grow? It seems to be a symbiotic relationship. Well, it's bizarre, isn't it? Really, when you start thinking about trees in terms of sort of family relationships, and there's this concept of mother trees, which initially it sounds a bit kind of hippie, you know, sort of mother tree. But you look at a mature beech wood, and there'll be one or two or three really, really big, big old beech trees. And around them, you can see their children. You can see all the smaller trees that are a result of this, this these big parents. And the mycelial network that, that the trees have used or are being used by the mycelium to interconnect is, is feeding uh, minerals, it's feeding vitamins, it's feeding fluid between them. I think I mentioned a mature oak tree. It needs 250 litres of water a day, every single day. So the, the more that it can expand its root system, the, the better. Um, but these relationships aren't, on behalf of the mushroom, they're not wholly benevolent. You know, it's, it, I think of it like a private medical plan, because once you're committed to it, you're committed to it, and the tree will be... Uh, it will be getting a, a lot from the mushroom. It will be getting uh, defensive chemical compounds. It will be getting antifungal compounds. It's being protected from other aggressive fungal species, but in exchange for which it's got to give up 30 something percent of its carbs constantly. You know, this is a, this is a commitment that they have to each other. I think, I think now that the, the the research is something that 80-something percent or 90 percent of, of, of plants on Earth, they justify that they have mycorrhizal relationships. Some plants have got, have got these relationships to such an extent that they've, they've changed a lot. Some of the orchids and things like that that have really strong mycorrhizal relationships, they stopped having, they don't have any leaves, they don't, have, they don't photosynthesize. So they're not they're not operating in the same way. They change a whole morphology because they're they're dependent and interlinked with the mushrooms. Mm. It's uh, it's amazing, isn't it? And I love 
I don't know, just uh, it's, it's quite humbling to know, I think, and, and kind of refreshing, really, there's a human race. We think we've got everything nailed and we understand everything, but the fact that we have really got no comprehension of being able to walk into a forest and that all of those uh, yeah, living species are interconnected and talking to each other and feeding each other and helping and supporting each yeah, other is a pretty beautiful our, thing, really. We are, we're so in our the, the bring it, Bringing out the inner hippie in me, for sure, but I think you, <laughs> you feel very different, and I, you do this a lot more than I do, but that, that ability to sit under a big tree in the forest and, and realise that everything around you, underneath your bottom and your feet is interconnected and helping each other it's quite a cool place to sit isn't it yeah it's back lovely. to that yeah, meditative sure. benefit i suppose of getting out in the woods yeah definitely I mean, it's, it's multi-fold it is yeah um i've got to touch on this because this is the humans of hospitality podcast so all too often um it's got a restaurant or a, a chef slant uh, albeit it's also just where our food and our drink comes from um but you had a gastro pub at one point so in, in your two. history two yeah, yeah impressive one was in london was it they both both I hate the expression gastropub. Maybe I read that somewhere. But, but, but no, no. It, I mean, that's essentially what it was. They both were. Um, we opened just around the corner from the Eagle in Clerkenwell, which was definitely thought of as the original gastropub. Right. <clears throat> and um, yeah, me and me and a friend of mine, we were going to um, we were going to get a little shop and knock it out and put in table football and. Have bottled beers, right? And nice. the next thing, we'd signed a twenty-five-year lease on a four-story Georgian townhouse. Oh my goodness! That in was central a, that, London. That, that went uh, wrong quite quickly, didn't it? Yeah, all <laughs> right. Um, I suppose probably at the time. But. And we were opening in inverted commas a gastro pub. Yeah, it was it was terrifying. It was completely free fall. It was sort of like, well, not as dramatic, but it was like setting out to sea with. A load of planks and fabric and trying to build a boat as you went along. That's, that's the, well, the entrepreneurial way, doesn't it? Jump off the cliff and work out how to swim on the uh, on the way down, I yeah, think. Yeah, for so. sure. And um, bizarrely enough, it it went really well. Um, it's still, the, pubs, the pub was called The Green. Right. Um, it wasn't a pub before we opened it. It was a restaurant site that had become, I suppose, sort of stigmatised by the fact that two very famous chefs had both gone bankrupt oh, really? <laughs> on that site yeah before we took it over it was Maison Novelli right. Jean-Christophe Novelli's flagship restaurant wow. which he'd gone quite dramatically bust at and before that it was uh, Marco Pierre White so it was uh-huh. Café Saint-Pierre and then when we started looking for uh, premises in Clerkenwell everywhere was really expensive and there was this this place Gorgeous, like four-storey Georgian townhouse on Clerkenwell Green, with a curved frontage, no premium on the lease at all, and uh, we just kind of got carried away. Wow! And and I think that was it. I think it was because it was sort of as a restaurant that had failed twice, so it was a bit of a bad site. But we were like very gung ho and also naive about that, and it, it went. It went didn't go so well for the first year then we found our feet it went really really well for a few years and then we opened another one in Islington okay and then I then the business fell apart and it was hemorrhaging cash really yeah it was terrifying I didn't eat for about six months or sleep wow and then I, I managed to get out of that okay and I'm really glad I did I never want anything to do with <laughs> I never want to have another pub it's, again uh, it was awful really Probably if you're an industry professional who knows how to run a pub. No, everyone's winging it. Nobody is. <laughs> but, 
But, I, you know, classic male ego vehicle, right. I decided that I could run a pub, which is yeah. just so wrong and, in hindsight, so arrogant. And I really got what I deserved. And I got out of it after eight years or so, not unscathed, but reasonably so, considering... That's good going. Eight years is still a long time. Which yeah. bit of it was it that, that, I don't know, caused you the most stress? All the of hemorrhaging it. cash. <laughs> All um, of it, really. Like a normal Monday morning would be that the head chef had disappeared. There'd been three noise complaints at the weekend. The man from Listed Building Consent, who we didn't even know had anything to do, us, do with us, was there to tell us that we had too many windows and we had to lower the height of the bar. And also, because where we were on Clark and Well Green, the basement was backed up with raw sewage. <laughs> and that would be like a normal Monday. That would that be does, like a kind of part of the course. The, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was... We were walking down Exmouth Market once, me and my business partner, and a friend of his who hadn't seen him for a while just stopped and went, hello, Skeletor, how's the stress diet? Wow. Because he'd obviously just, like, shed loads and loads of weight. So, yeah, yeah I... I think if that had been my industry, it would have been fine. I mean, yeah. I was a commercial photographer for 15 years and I knew how to put together a, a photo shoot. But if I'd been a publican for 15 years and I suddenly decided I was going to do a photo, like a big commercial shoot for a building society, it would have gone to shit. Yeah. And yeah. I would have deserved that, yeah. really. So why I thought that with the pub... Yeah, it took you a while to work it out, though, eight years. Most, most uh, restaurants, I think it's, you know, 80% failure rate within the first 24 months, well, I think. This is so what you did well. We... we um, we set it up with a little bit, of, with, on very little money, with a little bit of borrowed money and an awful lot of help from friends who all seemed to be unemployed that summer right. who all did all the work for us. But the, the, we did borrow a little bit of cash to a firm that finances things for pubs and hospitality. And the guy there, he said to us, no, we've never got any shortage of people wanting to come into the industry yeah, it's at, at that, that level. Yeah. Big projects, that was different. But the people who were like, I've made good in one thing, and I think, I'm oh, great, yeah. I'm going to open a pub. He said, yeah. we've got a queue of those. Amazing, isn't it? Low Suckers. barriers to entry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right. And, and too many of them... Uh, yeah, go wrong. But the reason I brought it up, apart from uh, to, to make you kind of uh, grateful, I suppose, the fact you're not doing it anymore, is that you built, uh, even then, forage food into the menu. So mm. was that was that a challenge when you talk about consistency, I suppose, of supply and the quantity of supply? Was this uh, a niche part of the menu? Or was this very much part of the overall kind of concept, I guess? It wasn't our overall concept. For me, it was my um, escape plan. Yeah, I got myself involved in a business that, wasn't what I thought it might be and it kind of terrified me and I would say things to my business partner like I have got to go to Devon for four days to pick wild garlic so we can have wild garlic mash and he would long-sufferingly say go on then off you go right um we kind of peppered our menu with bits and pieces we integrated them when 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 we could but we weren't Vlogging the concept of this is, you know, this is a wild food pub right. type of thing. Um, it, it was it was quite nice to do that. And I, I cook a lot and I do a lot of experiments with food, but I'm not a chef. And it's often really nice to see what a chef will do, mm. a decent chef will do with 
you know, I might get my well, garlic and I'm very lazy with a lot of my cooking mushrooms. I want to fry them and I want to eat them because that's essentially for me the best way to eat them. Yeah. But when we did my um, when we did my book launch, there's like 50 or 60 recipes in the book. And I'm not plugging the book. It looks no, like no, three no. or four years ago. Yeah, but when yeah, we did the book launch, I got a friend of mine, uh, Rob, who's um, head chef at um, Clarkenwell Kitchen. And he cooked some of the recipes from my book, but he supercharged them with chefy skills. So I had like a, a little thing called a sorrel stomp, which is potatoes and sorrel and bacon together. And he turned it into a roshdi version of it. And it was amazing. I had these little mushroom cakes and he turned them into an arancini version of them. So everything that he did elevated my sort of pedestrian cooking skills to stratospheric highs it was really nice to see i need to i need to form and i think i have actually i need to form a relationship with uh another chef uh but reasonably local to where i am because despite the forage london moniker i i live in dorset and i i i want to be able to supply things to somebody but not for a fee just because it's a kind of ad hoc interest and i've got a glut of them yeah. that they can then do something interesting with mm. and that's what i would w- would do with rob sometimes i'd mm. take him in like some wild leeks that i'd picked or something i'd take in some stuff and just say look don't want any money just have a play with that and then yeah. i'd sometimes get an invite to dinner yeah, or whatever perfect so, yeah and that still happens actually we get it with um certainly when the when the game kind of seasons in people rock up with with game and and their skill is you know is shooting it and catching yeah. it not necessarily the butchering and the prep and the cook side of it uh, uh chefs are amazing aren't they particularly you know it's, it's, it's another sort of disappointing side of the industry i suppose that it's hard to get chefs now um so much of cooking because of the rollout i suppose of venture capitalist kind of casual dining sector has become cooking not chefing so yeah, it's kind yeah. of centralized kitchen and reheating stuff up but when you get you know properly trained you know classically trained chefs who just have that ability yeah to try a little bit and work out what they should do with that flavor profile and what they can add to it just from their heart basically it's, uh, it's very exciting it's rare person who can totally think on his feet you know if you're you want to know how many pork chops you've got in the fridge you want to know what you're doing you want to know how many covers you're doing you want to understand roughly what people's expectations is of you and how you're going to produce it and to to then adapt your menu every day is hard enough but i think to then adapt your menu with ingredients you may not have experience of Mm. it's, it's got to be quite brave yeah definitely and, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and the customers don't always appreciate it i love you know fish is, is a is a complicated subject because uh, fish move a lot so what you're going to catch one day from the next you know it's easier in a in a, in a field at least because you can follow the seasons and you know there might be a six week difference depending on temperatures yeah. but you know roughly what you're going to get when um but yeah much harder in fishing but but it's lovely if you if if the customers can cope with the fact that you know, we went through a period where you just uh, deliver a, the box of, you know, market fish, whatever, whatever was caught that day, basically. Yeah, and the chefs sure. would love it because they get to use their creative expertise to create something different. Yeah. But it means there might only be four portions of that, eight portions of that. And it's yeah. really difficult in a busy restaurant, in a small restaurant where it can literally, you know, blackboard and you can cross it out as things go. It's OK. But in a big, busy restaurant where all of a sudden you find out that actually four tables have just ordered that and there's none left for the other three tables that were being served at the same time. Yeah. Uh, it's horrible. But it's a beautiful way of 
of cooking and certainly my favorite restaurants are where you can rock up and you know, almost just say look uh tell the chef to send whatever's lovely today basically i don't mind what it is but uh it's an increasingly rare thing yeah I it think. is isn't it uh yeah but um i'll introduce you to uh to my head chef and then uh yeah do a do a do a, a foraging exchange some uh, yeah wild garlic for dinner yeah, uh, for exchange sure. would be uh a pleasure um so you did mention the book, and although it's not a plug, I think it's really interesting because it's a great place to go to uh, to get some facts. Who was that? Because it was called the Edible City, I think, wasn't yeah. it? And this concept, and you're called, you know, Forage London, this concept that it isn't, you know, hunter welly boots and walking your dog and all kind of middle class kind of people popping into Waitrose and nipping out to the forest. You know, I love the idea that you can do this in the city. Was was the book specifically aimed at, at, at people in the city? And is one of your kind of key things you love to do, I suppose, is to get people in those urban environments to understand that, yeah, you don't have to live in the new forest. Well, I was this. living in London and I lived there for 20 years and I was trying to escape for 10. But right. I was trying to get away. I was backwards and forwards between London and Dorset for a good decade before I managed to move. So what I was trying to do was bring as much of the countryside into the city as I possibly could. And then it became sort of obvious to me that actually there was tons of the countryside in the city anyway. It's just how you choose to look at it. But yeah, I called it the Edible City and I wrote it as a diary. I wrote, thought about it a lot. Why did I write it like that? And I wrote it in the only way that I was qualified to write a book. Because unless I started vastly researching a topic, I was only able to write about what I knew. And what I knew about was my life, living in the city and going foraging. So I wrote it as 12 months of the year and it's February. I went here, I did this, I got somebody to look after my son for five minutes in the playground while I grabbed some garlic mustard or whatever it might be. Um... That sounds bad, actually. I didn't get anybody to look after him. I said to a friend, keep an eye on him for a minute. Uh, anyway, and he does a lot of foraging with me now, which is nice. Um, but yeah, it was really about um, how you integrate that into the rest of your life. So I basically, I did four little stories for each month about different places in London and recipes for everything that I picked. And I got to work with a really lovely illustrator who did amazing beautiful drawings for the book and everything like that and I was thinking I would do and I was mulling over another book for ages I think I was doing a guide to wild food nutrition but then thinking I shouldn't really write that qualified nutritionist should write that and I'm backwards and forwards with book ideas but I'd probably just do a continuation of the edible city but I don't live in the city anymore so it's just going to be it can incorporate more mushrooms and more seaweeds and things like that things that I wouldn't have been able to include right. at, at the time yeah have you um do you know Dr Gregor the uh, how not to die book have you seen it no. it's called great 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 title isn't it but around um, I suppose around food is medicine but but very much around the fact that uh, yeah the nutrition of plants I suppose and how so many of them uh, are good and, and beneficial for your health but I think there's a there's a huge growth in the understanding of that and the interest of in it I get the challenge of yeah I don't know how you even know how you work out the nutritional makeup of a dandelion but well, I think if you could that get is, that right. that is a that is a problem as well and there's not enough research behind it and it is also quite disparate and in order order to do that you need baselines as well don't you so there's no point saying a dandelion leaf contains x because it's got to be picked in what soil at what time of year what size of the leaf what are the conditions so yeah. these things aren't all um you haven't got enough baselines in place yeah um you can say that this will have a disproportionate amount of phytonutrients antioxidants whatever it 
it might be. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think you have to take broad broad yeah. strokes with it. Frustrating. It's always our challenge to try and um, be so specific. I, I one of my bugbears and whilst I get the motivation of the government looking at you know calories and, and all of the allergens and all of the stuff that, that they more and more want you to put on a uh, on a menu in the restaurant world I also recognize that you know we've touched on this you know chef's skills is working out actually I'm going to tweak that and I'm going to add a little bit of that and I'm yeah, going to take yeah. a little bit of that away and, and it's a shame that if the solution to our uh, I don't know our desire to either minimize risk or know all of the information is that everything's made in a factory you know and it's always perfectly the same yeah. uh, is a shame well it's just the general gist that, that this is all the cool stuff that's in a dandelion is that you know should be enough really well, in come this... back to what you said about you know eating oranges versus taking vitamin c tablets i think the problem with that is that the body does not know what to do with a vitamin c tablet where it mm. does know what to do with an orange you've yeah. got absorption and you've got assimilation at work our bodies have had millions of years hundreds of thousands of years i should say to, uh, to understand how to digest food, how to absorb food. But you give somebody a thousand milligram vitamin C tablet, the body has no idea what to do with this. So most of it just passes straight through. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and one of the other things um, that I read that I, I, I don't know, there's a slight sort of romanticism to it almost, but the sort of learning process that you went on around what you could eat and, and understanding the seasonality. And a lot of that was kind of self-taught. There was a particular park in London that you used to pass on a regular basis and, and you would just observe those changes during the course of the year. Because yeah, it I sounded mean, like a lovely way, a slow way to learn, I suppose, and assimilate all of that information. I suppose most of it was self-taught sometimes I attached myself to other people who had information that I wanted to glean and kind of clung to them and till the point that they got bored with me and shook me off but most of, yeah most of it was self-taught yeah I was living in North London I was living close to Clissold Park in Stoke Newington and that was my local park and I was um I wrote a blog about it about what I learned from Clissold Park because I thought about the fact that gentle repetition across the seasons of the same thing rather than an academic form of learning is a really, really good kind of multi-layered way to absorb information. I'm not an academically gifted person. In fact, the total reverse. So when I started getting interested in foraging, I was really surprised at how much information I absorbed and how much I retained. Mm. I was really quite shocked. I remember reading a book about something uh, once and then and then thinking, God, I probably remember about 25% of everything in the book that I've just read, which is really unusual when, you, when you're at school and you're told you're not very bright and you're told if you don't get your shit together, your, your window for opportunity for learning will close. You know, right, well, and, and I it. thought mine had shut down. And, and it was only when I became fascinated by this, I realised how much I could could absorb. But yeah, I was up to, so I wrote this blog called what, what, something like What I Learned from Clissold Park. It's about the idea that I learned more about nature from one square mile of central London than I did from the rest of the country put together. And the reason I learned from Clissold Park was not because it's a foraging hotspot, it's because it was my local park and it would just as easily have been any other park, any other place, were I to be living next to it. But I was up to about, um, so when I wrote the article, at the end of it, I thought I should do a list of all the plants that I've, different plant species I've eaten that come from this park. And I got up to 175 wow. different species. And I wasn't after a clever number. I just did it as a list. And 
you could find 80% of those in loads and loads of other London parks as well, or commons or, or open spaces or whatever they were. Um, so easily 200, 250 different urban growing, wild, unintentionally edible, which is things that have been planted that happen to have an edible use or feral, feral plants. But yeah, the, the, the process was not academic. The idea that you go for a walk and you look at something and you go, what's that? And you go, I don't know. And then maybe a week later you look at it and it's got a little bit more information. And then maybe two weeks later it's got a flower or it's got something and it becomes obvious what it is. But your brain starts to absorb the information about what things look like at different stages of their development and from... Uh, Foraging is very different from botany because with botany, you're often looking to identify things when they're in full flower, which maybe, as far as I'm concerned, it's like when they've got a label on them. Mm. In foraging terms, you often want to use things when all they've got on show is two very small leaves. That may be when it's its absolute best. And therefore, that's where you've got to be able to identify it. So I would always teach people to learn their plants backwards, learn them in the high summer when they've got all the information on. They've got the flowers, they've got fruit, they've got their upper leaves, which are quite intricate. They've got lower leaves, which might be more simple. So as you can become familiar with something in all its stages of development, so as you can know how to identify it and use it at the time that you want to. Mm. Or even to the extent of you can stick a stick in the ground you know, if you if you if you know that that is um, if you know those are horseradish leaves and you want to dig that horseradish root up, stick a stick in the ground and come back. And then when the leaves have died back, you know that root you're digging up is the horseradish. I mean, it's not going to be a tricky thing to identify horseradish anyway, is it? A horseradish itself by the smell, but just just the idea that it's a uh, yeah not an academic process yeah. at all, really, like a like a multi-layered thing, like you identify something, or you see something, you hunt for something, you find it, you take it back, you identify it, you cook with it, you eat it, you, you're, you're using and all these different parts of your brain in the process, you'll become really emotionally involved with all of your senses with something. and. Um, you're a really nice way, really nice way to learn. We have a cat yeah, on the table. We do. Yeah. I can pop, popping in for a drink. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm thinking, hopefully this has inspired a few people who are listening and go, it sounds lovely. I, I particularly like the idea, I'm, I'm conscious of always rushing around places. We, we touched on earlier, to do a bit of meditation. I always try really hard with the kids to try and get them to just be a bit more present. There's a park that we walk through on the way to school every day and I drive them bonkers by getting excited about the different times of the, the year and the leaves and the flowers and we live by the sea as well. So the sea always looks different every day and trying to be present but this is a way of uh, uh yeah of really doing that i suppose to another level um so people listen it's, it's, it's where to start i suppose is it is it literally is, is there certain times of the year that are better and is there a good place you mentioned some of the species but i'm thinking this particular park i walk through is it pretty likely that there's always something there that that is edible because it doesn't and i always feel also that it doesn't it shouldn't just be because it's edible that we slow down and look at it but i guess it's a good motivator so yeah you do need a good motivator and Yes, there's definitely always going to be something there that is edible, regardless of which part you're talking about and where it is. Yeah. Um, it's worth considering that the majority of our parks and open green spaces, although they're public access, 
they are bizarrely enough private property and therefore there's a lot of there's a big grey area here and uh, bylaws are often waved around or, or, or spoken about. The way I view the law is that if you have access to a place, if you're allowed to be there, you are allowed to forage there. Now that is reasonably debatable because there's such a lot of uh, conjecture on this topic, but something like mushrooms, for example, they're exempt from the Theft Act, 1968 Theft Act. So you can't steal mushrooms by picking them. That is not theft. Really? Um, the, the Highways and Countrysides Act, there's, there's sort of three or four different acts and foraging tends to fall slightly between them. But in our English law, you are allowed to forage for personal use for fruit and fungi and flowers and anything that's above ground, basically. You're not allowed to dig up roots without the permission of the landowner. I've never been uh, told to stop what I'm doing but I'm not blatant about it. It doesn't mean I sneak into the park with my head torch on. It just means if I'm going to pick a load of stinging nettles, I'll pick a load of stinging nettles. I won't pick a whole bloody field of them or invite 20 yeah, people to do like Common sense, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, cherries, I don't pick park, cherries out of parks. I actually pick a cherry blossom because it's much more plentiful and I think it's a lot more usable. Um, so yeah, I think there's lots and lots of opportunities for people foraging in urban and non-urban environments. I think you've got to exercise a bit of common sense. You've got to not be greedy. You've not. You, you've got to have a regard for what else is going on around you, and and the ways that other people might use a park. You've got to do a little bit of research into potential uh, toxicity or pollutants. I don't think ingesting foraged foods or any new food is a good idea for anybody who might be pregnant or might have other health concerns you know with a little bit of common sense it's a really rewarding thing to do and it's totally safe with an absence of those it's potentially deadly but then right. so is crossing the road isn't it very true so yeah. um okay so if we've inspired uh, some people uh, to to at least make a start uh where should they start? Is it a case of hitting Google? Is buy your book I, just just to get some basic knowledge? So imagine people are spread out around the country. Yes. The best thing they could do is go to the Association of Foragers website. So about five, six, five years ago, I helped form an uh, association of foraging teachers with uh, half a dozen other people that I knew around the country. And we've now got about 100, 120 national and international members. It's been nice, actually, because some of my heroes have joined. It's Amazing. like, That's oh, great, my God, it? he's yeah. in our gang. That's lovely. Yeah. So um, there's people like Roger Phillips, who's written the kind of UK mushroom Bible and wow. things like that, who's yeah. joined. There's eminent French ecologists who've joined and things. It's been really, really good. That is a good starting point for finding somebody who's running events that would... Um, be a good thing to join you could i mean there's a lot of books now there right. are i there's probably more foraging books for the uk than we're ever going to need but but things progress um uh, you could look at a website of of somebody in your area 
Okay. I mean, my my website is um, is a bit of a misnomer, really, because it's called Forage London, and it's it's now called Forage London and Beyond. But nobody's going to search and beyond, right. are they? Yeah. But I live in Dorset. I run a lot of events in Dorset and in Hampshire, and I slightly reluctantly go back to London to talk to people about nature, which is obviously not the reason that I moved to the countryside. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you if you I can think of people teaching foraging pretty much all around the UK. Yeah. So it shouldn't be that hard to find somebody to, so that's a to good take point. and that's a really good way to learn really good you know if you go out with somebody who knows their stuff and they say that is cow parsley not hemlock then they're going to tell you why it's cow parsley not hemlock and they're going to explain some things that you can't get out of a book things yeah. like smells yeah you know which are really important mm. i was thinking of actually doing a scratch and sniff foraging guide <laughs> But I don't know about you. My youth, I think anything that was scratch and sniff, either smell of lemonade or strawberries. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely a. So as long as it's those two things, you'll be fine. Okay, what the association you mentioned, was there a website for that? Yeah, it's called the Association of Foragers. Okay, dot. One of them. Okay, I'll put some show links and to your website. Yeah, that'd be great uh, as well, so people can find it, uh, and that'll be a good uh, a good spot to go. So humansofhospitality.co.uk, you'll find the links on there. Thank you so much. Fascinating. Welcome. I just, uh, yeah, it's it's mind blowing. Um, feels so simple. Uh, my wife's a primary school teacher. I can't help but feel that that somehow we should get this onto the curriculum and get kids doing it. It feels like a natural way of bringing it back into the human race. But at least you're doing it with the uh, with the grown ups, and hopefully that will trigger down as well. So uh, yeah, good and luck. Some, and sometimes kids, we do get kids do come on come on the walks. Yeah, yeah, yeah and they're. I mean, they're brilliant on foraging walks, kids. Apart from anything, they're closest to the ground. Very true. So they can see a lot more. But yeah, they're very enthusiastic. Yeah, excellent. Okay, John, thank you for spending the time. Very much appreciated. You're welcome. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned and we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday